Good morning. Those of you who don't are not familiar with me, I'm sure most of you probably are, but let me kind of introduce myself. My name is Darren Janelle, and I am surely worth thankful for being here, and this is an honor for me to be here. Um, I want to start off by saying that a lot of times when I've preached, this is my fourth sermon, so a lot of times when I'm finished preaching, a lot of people ask me what seminary or whatever I attended or seminary I went to. I didn't attend any seminary. Um, this was a calling on my life that, that God chose. Okay, so my seminary is the Holy Spirit. I want to put that there. And he is the teacher and sustainer of me. So um, one thing I would like to say, too, is about the identity of the church and the nature of the church is, is that a lot of people proclaim the name of God. A lot of people identify themselves with Christ, but their lives and what they say out of their mouths don't, don't conform. It's, there's, a, there's a missing link in this society that we live in today. It's, it's kind of a shame. Me and Jason was kind of talking about this yesterday, about how the church is not really representing Christ as they should. And so, therefore, a lot of people who proclaim the name of Christ and they identify themselves with Christ, but those who are not identifying themselves with Christ, they look on at these people who claim to be Christians and they think that they could have Christ in the world too, and that's, that's not true. That's not scriptural and it's not true. So understanding someone's true identity makes a, a huge difference. When people understand the true identity of Dark Vader, it makes a, a huge difference, especially in the lives of Luke. Okay. When people understand the, the true identity of Clark Kent, it makes a, a huge difference, especially for Lois Lane. Right. So one's true identity is important. Stories of identity crisis frequently make headlines and and understanding someone or something's true identity. Can make a huge difference. This brings us to Matthew chapter 16. And we'll start at verse 13 and I'll read 13 through 20. While you're turning there. Let me know when you get there. Just say amen. Just kind of give me an amen when you get there. This is a story about identity. Okay. Specifically, we have three identities here. One is the identity of Christ, most importantly and foremost. Okay. Number two, secondly, we have the identity of Peter. Peter plays an important role here. And three, lastly but not least, we have the identity of the church. So we have three distinct identities out of these, out of these verses. So we have, and I will read. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
So as I mentioned before in these verses, we have three distinct personalities. We have three distinct identities. One is Christ, the second is Peter, and thirdly, we have the church. So Jesus now retreats with his disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And he returns to his disciples and he asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, he asks, who do people think I am? What is the word around town? What are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? His disciples answer in verse 14. And they say, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, these were the positive things that people were saying about the identity of Jesus Christ. These were the positive things, okay? And not much has changed from that time to now. Matter of fact, I think they've gotten worse. People still don't know the identity of Christ. So, from that time now, Muslims think that that Jesus was a great prophet, but the Son of God? No, 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 not the Son of God. No, that couldn't be. Mormons think that Jesus is the half-brother of Lucifer. Okay, so we have that Jews think that Jesus was the human leader of a of a sect. The Baha'i faith teaches that Jesus is a manifestation of God. In Scientology, I don't know if y'all are familiar with this Scientology that's real popular in Hollywood. I call it Holly weird because you have these Tom Cruises, you have Oprah Winfrey and you have all these people. And Scientology is, is basically eradicated God from the equation whatsoever because they've made an image of God within their minds. OK, and which is idolatry. So they think that Jesus is one step below an operating theater, whatever, whatever that may be. I, I'm not even familiar with that. Atheists think that Jesus was a great guy who just did some good things. Jehovah Witnesses think that Jesus was a created being similar to God, but not fully God. I can remember, I don't know if you can, a few years back in Hollywood, and like I said, I call it Holly Weird, that people thought it was cool to wear T-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Okay? And if you were to ask them if they believe in God, they would, they would probably say yes. And then turn right around and say, but I'm not sure about this Jesus guy. I'm not, I'm not sure about him. As if Jesus is not God in the flesh himself. So we have all this, and and people basically were confused about the identity of Jesus. So in verses 15 through 17, we have, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? So basically, he's making it personal now. He's giving them a test. He's bringing them up on this test. Okay, so now it's becoming personal. And, of course, Simon answered him and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and and Jesus uh, answered him and told him, Blessed you, uh, Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. So basically what Jesus was saying to him is that he says flesh and blood did not give this to you. In other words, you didn't come up with this on your own. You, you, you didn't use your own wisdom or your own intellect or your own knowledge to come up with this answer. So... We, we see in these verses, we see that after asking his disciples what, what people are saying about him, Jesus then turns and gives them the biggest test of their lives up to that point. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And so Peter takes the test on behalf of the, of the whole group in verse 16. And he, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, meaning that Jesus has the same 
nature as God the Father. The same nature. So Peter passed his test with, with flying colors. He understood at least in part the identity of Jesus. At least in part. So people were confused about the identity of Jesus. Peter understands the identity of Jesus. But how does Peter understand the identity of Jesus is what I want to ask. Okay? I'll tell you how. It was by revelation. Verse 17 says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not give this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, you notice that Jesus did not say to him, Jesus says flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, meaning that you, not, you didn't figure this out on your own. Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, Peter, you finally figured it out, or it's about time, or I'm glad I chose you because you're really clever, Peter. No, he, he, he didn't say these things. From a human perspective, many of us assume that if we saw the things that Peter saw, then of course we would be able to figure out that he was the son of God. After all, he sap, supernaturally fed 5,000 people and then later 4,000. I mean, he cast demons out of people. He forgave sins. He turned water into wine. He made the lame walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. He calmed the storm by the power of his words. He raised people from the dead. All these things prove that he was the son of the living God. But Jesus does not say you saw the signs and you figured it out. Good job. Many people saw the same exact signs and still did not believe. So. The only reason Peter understood the identity of Jesus was because God revealed this to him. If you think Jesus was just a great man or a great prophet, then you're still blind. This, this is not enough. If you think Jesus is the son of the living God, then you are blessed. You didn't reach this conclusion through reason or intellect or, or wisdom. This was a supernatural act of God, a supernatural work of God. Anything you get from Scripture, that, or any insight that we get from Scripture doesn't come from our intellect. Matter of fact, we don't want to learn anything about God whatsoever. Our nature is to rebel, to run. In Romans 3.10, it says that there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek him. So if there are none who seek him, will we in our flesh seek anything spiritually, anything in the word of God? At, not, not at all. Not at all. So now we come to, secondly, we come to Peter. And the answer, who is Peter. A lot of people may ask. The answer is complicated, or it, it could be complicated. If we go back to verse 17, I'm going to read 17 and 18. It says that, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Bar Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, those two verses, these next eight words I'm about to say is probably the most disputed words in the Bible. On this rock, I will build my church. Probably the most eight disputed words in the Bible today. Okay. The Roman Catholics believe this, that verse 18 is the, is the proof that Peter was the first pope. 
Okay, as a result, they think that verse 18 is the beginning of the, of the, pap, the papal secession. In light of this, they believe that the, the current pope is the head of the church today, the very vicar of Christ on earth, the possessor of the, of the keys of the kingdom, and God's man to rule the church universal. Now, this is not only quite a, quite a claim. Matter of fact, that is blasphemy in the first degree. It's exactly what it is. Any man that thinks that he's the vicar of Christ on earth is a serious problem. So Jesus' statement did not mean that, that Peter would have greater authority than the other apostles. Indeed, Paul corrects him publicly in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. If you go there, let's, let's go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. And it reads, But when Caiaphas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came and drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Caiaphas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you face the Gentiles to live like the Jews? See, so he, he, he basically confronted Peter there in public. So what we have there is Peter couldn't be the, the main man here that we're looking at. I mean, he would, it doesn't mean that he would be infallible in his teaching. Jesus rebukes him in Matthew in 16:23. Nor did it imply anything about a special office or Peter or successors to a such, such an office. Certainly, in the first half of Acts, Peter appears as the spokesman and leader of the Jerusalem church. But he's still sent by the other apostles to Samaria in Acts 8:14. And he's given an account of his actions to the Jerusalem church. That's in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. And though Peter certainly has a central role in the establishment of the church, he disappears from the Acts narrative after Acts 16. He just disappears. Furthermore, the disciples surely didn't think that Peter was the supreme pontiff either. Because in Acts chapter uh, 18, verse 1, the disciples asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom? So let's look at verse 18. Let's look at verse 18 again. Here he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the original language, verse 18 sounds like this. You are Petros, and this Petra I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Petros means small rock, okay? It means small rock, and Petra means big rock. So Jesus says to Peter, you are the small rock, and on this big rock I will build my church. Notice that Jesus does not say to Peter, you are Peter, and on you, Peter, I will build my church. You notice he doesn't say that, okay? There's a distinct difference between Peter, small rock, and the big rock 
that the church is built on. There's a big difference. There's a distinct difference. All this to say that Peter and the rock that the church is built on are not identical. So what is the rock that the church is built on? What, what is this rock? I mean, the rock that the, I mean, is, is the most eight disputed words probably in the Bible now. So what is the rock? The rock that the church is built on is Peter's role in confessing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's the, that's the rock that the church is built on. Okay? That Jesus Christ is the confession. This confession is the foundation of the church. A church built on any other foundation will fail. So here's the application. Who was Peter? Peter was a sinner. Okay? He was a sinner saved by grace. And by the grace of God, he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God. The church of Jesus Christ is built on this incredibly simple foundation. Whenever someone confesses this, they become part of the church universe. And it's not just saying it, but conforming your lives to that. Because when a person truly is converted, there will be a transformation in that person's life. You will see the fruits in that person's life. So the church is built on the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. There's a strong temptation to build the church on so many other things. Like youth ministry and worship ministry and spiritual gifts and charismatic personalities and amazing buildings, end times theology, parenting philosophies, homeschooling, Christian health plans or something else. And, and any church built on any of these foundations will crumble. In Romans chapter 3 verse 11 it says that there is no other foundation other than the one already laid and that's Jesus Christ. Um, any church built on any of these foundations will crumble. This is a quote from D.A. Carson. And this, this is what he says. and It's quite amazing. He says that the first generation believes the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. And the third generation totally abandons the gospel. That's where we're at. Today, we've totally abandoned the gospel. I mean, these on this uh, Ray Comfort, we was doing this back this past summer. We were doing this thing, and Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron were asking these people about who built who built the ark, and they couldn't. They they went all around the question. Moses, um, I don't know. You know, we've become spiritually illiterate to the fact of the gospel. We've because it's been so watered down to this. It's been watered down to. Let me ask you a few questions. Are you a sinner? They say yes. Do you want to go to heaven? Well, yeah. They say, well, say this prayer after me. As if it's some magical formula to saving to a person finding salvation. There is no formula to this. It's the Holy Spirit enters into a person and changes their life from the inside out. There's no words that you can say of, at the age of five years old or six years old that can save a person. So, so many people build salvation on so many other things other than the word of God. It's been lost. Now, the church is built by Jesus Christ. We, we find that out. The, the identity of Peter matters. The identity of Jesus, the identity of Peter, and thirdly but not least, the identity of the church. 
And what do we learn about the church's identity? Well, the church is built by Jesus Christ. If we look at verse 18 again, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. So Jesus proclaims that he will build his church. This is such good news. As I look around and I see Western culture unraveling, the terrorist attacks in Paris, the the immigration crisis in Europe, the, the breakdown of the family in America, I mean, Abortion on demand, gay marriage, hate speech legislation, our nation's massive debt problems. There's a clear pattern in world history, and that pattern is this. When cultures decay morally, chaos ensues, and then a dictator. A dictator has to come in and and restore order. This may or may not happen to us, but if it does, it is not going to stop Jesus Christ from building his church. Now, a lot of communist China tried to stamp out the church, and now there are over 60 million Christians in China. Islam has tried to stamp out the church, and there's thousands are coming to Christ all over the Muslim world. Because pastors don't build church, the elders don't build the church, programs don't build the church, Jesus Christ builds his church. Yes, prayer and preaching and outreach and hospitality are crucial. And yes, God uses these means to to build his church. But but ultimately, Christ builds his church, and he will do this with or without us. He builds his church in closed countries, in poor countries, atheistic, atheistic countries, countries controlled by ISIS. It does not matter. Mankind can build all kinds of impressive things. But they cannot build a church. Huh. What do we learn about the church's identity? One, the church is built by Jesus, number one. What else do we learn about the, the body of Christ's identity? The church is indestructible. We read in verse 18, and I, I do this because I, won't, I, I prove Scripture with Scripture. I don't prove Scripture with the world's definition of Scripture. Okay? So I use the Word of God. That's that's. This is the last authority on earth right here, the final authority. So I, I like using verses to, to prove a point. Uh, it says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. So Scripture is telling us this, that the church of Jesus Christ is indestructible. She cannot die. She will not die. She will endure for eternity. There is nothing Satan or ISIS or any of these terrorist groups can do about it. There's nothing can do to stop her. Now, we know this so far from Scripture, that the church is built by Jesus, that the church is, is indestructible. What do we learn about the church's identity? It is this, that the church has the keys to the kingdom. In verse 19, we read, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What are these keys? What are these keys? And what do they open? The keys are the the keys are the keys of the of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is the is the rule of God. These keys of the kingdom open and close the doors of the kingdom. So binding and loosing any 
is another way of saying opening and closing. So, but how does the church open the doors of the kingdom? By preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. By preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whenever the gospel is preached, the doors of the kingdom are flung wide open for all to enter freely. How does the church close the doors of the kingdom? By practicing church discipline. Hmm. This is exactly what happens as the book of Acts unfolds. The apostles led by Peter preached the gospel of the kingdom and thousands are saved. Thousands. In Acts chapter 5, they also practice church discipline. And church discipline happens when a professing Christian sins are so serious that the leadership of the church does not believe that that person is acting like a Christian anymore. Hmm. The only authority the church has to open and to close the doors of the kingdom is the word of God. That is it. You're not meant to survive on your own. You're not meant to live on the fringes of the church. As a matter of fact, a lot of times I, I look around and a lot of people, I have a cousin in Arkansas, and I was talking to, and they don't really call me anymore. They don't really talk to me anymore because ever, ever since that um, God has chosen me out of the world, they don't have anything else to talk to me about. So I, I was talking to one, and he, I said, so are you, uh, are you, you know, going to church? I asked him that, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, is it making a difference in your life? He said, no, I don't, I'm not ready to do all that. I just, I just like going to church, and then I'm, I'm fixed for the week. So it's, it's, it's a fix for the week. And so when I asked him, I said, well, what do you think about Jesus? He hangs up the phone on me. He has nothing else to see. My own brother, don't, I hadn't talked to him in a year. So I told them when I preached in Arkansas a couple weeks ago, the first thing I mentioned was that the gospel offends people. Okay? The gospel offends people, and the gospel saves people. So a lot of times we think, that, okay, if we go to church, then we're, we're okay. We got our fix for the week, as my cousin said. Or if we, we get baptized or we read our Bibles or, we, or any of these things, if, if it's not based off the word of God and Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. You can base it off all these things, but it, it's, that's not it. So as I mentioned, the only authority that the, the church has is to open and close the doors of the kingdom is, is the word of God. And the church... Jesus Christ, and we need to steward these keys well. I mean, the church, is, the church through Jesus Christ has been given a tremendous responsibility. Now, we have looked at the identity of the church, and, and, and here's the application. As I was saying before, you, you need the church. I need the church. She has the keys of the kingdom. You are meant, you are not meant to survive on your own. You are not meant to live on the fringes of the church. We are not meant to come once or twice a month and expect to be well spiritually. If this is you, there is one word to describe what needs to happen, and that is repent. Repentance means to change your mind and also a change of lifestyle, to turn away from sin and turn to Christ, and to repentance itself is also a gift. You can't go in your room and and make yourself repent. There's no, if you, you can't go into a room and make yourself believe. This, all these are gifts from God himself. These are gifts. Repentance is a gift. Okay? Amen? 
when we understand the true identity of Jesus Christ, Peter and the church, everything changes. Everything. And it's another thing I just want to mention, too, before I close this, is this, that a lot of times people feel like they've been truly converted because they've been to church. I want to make this an issue. We, we base theology now off man-centered. So man-centered. Oh, I can do this. I can pick myself up by my own bootstraps. I can do this and I can do that. No, you can't do anything without the power of God. I want to make that clear. Everything with salvation is a supernatural work of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for everything that you provide for salvation, Heavenly Father, for this is your work. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. And to you I give glory and praise and honor, Heavenly Father. I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you for the tools and the keys that you have given us. And may we use them the way that you would have us to use them. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for so many things. Although there are so many things that happen in the world, your body is still protected. You are the protector of us. So I thank you, Heavenly Father, for all of your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.